We're actually starting, we've started a series on the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and so last week we started kind of introduction. This week we're going to dive deep into the first commandment. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can look there. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse uh, 3. And we usually read beforehand, and it's a, the first commandment's very short. Many of us know it. And uh, it just simply says this, you shall have no other gods before me. And, but there's a lot here, and the meaning of what's here is, is really wonderful, and I look forward to diving de- deeply with you. But let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to come together this morning, and Father, to study this passage. I thank you for the truths that you've given us that guide our life, that define, Father, you want us to define our culture. And Father, thank you for these foundational truths. I thank you for the way that you continue to teach me. And Father, I pray now that your spirit would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help each one of us to to have hearts that are open to hear and understand and apply uh, the things that you would say to us today. Father, even if you step on our toes, Father, help us to see it as a a word that you challenge our hearts in in a loving way. I pray for your blessing now in our time and our study. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're starting this series, and last week we began looking at this whole series on the Ten Commandments, and and what we did is we started to lay out some kind of foundational principles to help us understand the nature of the Ten Commandments. Now, a lot of times people look at that, and they see them as primarily rules that God has given us to follow. And while you could say that they are moral rules, they are far more than that. And if that's all we see them as, we really don't understand the, the heart of them. What we saw last week is that they're really not just rules, but they're foundations, foundational principles, foundational truths that God gave, first of all, to the people of Israel as they are entering into the promised land. They're about to start a new nation. First time ever as a nation, he said, okay, these are the foundational truths that you need to understand if you want to have a healthy culture. And and not only that you need it as a culture, we need it as individuals. And so now as we come and study these some 3,000 years later, You know, they are still God's 10 foundational truths, principles that he has given us that he wants us to build our lives upon, that he wants us to build not only our lives, our families and our culture. The fact is, is that if we build our our lives on these things, if we build a culture on these things, we're going to be happier, we're going to be healthier, things are going to work because we're building on things that are true. Now, through this study, what we're going to do is we're going to spend time with each one of these commandments, and we're going, to, we're going to try to not only look at them simplistically of, well, here's the rule, but we're going to say, how do we understand this truth? How do we go deep and understand that there's not only a, a behavior that God's calling us to, to change, but there's a heart attitude that he's challenging us with? How do we understand that heart attitude? And not only that, how do we understand it broadly? How do we understand these as truths that literally are to, to redefine how we are under, understand our world? Now, you might be looking at this, and if you say, if you weren't here last week, and saying, okay, I understand that, and what's with that whole Jenga thing? You got a Jenga game up here, and, and what's the whole meaning of this? And you might be wondering, well, let me try to give an, bring you up to date. You know, what, what we talked about last week is we can think of the Ten Commandments like a game of Jenga. You see, when you play Jenga, we know that you know, you're taking out a block, and you're placing it on top, and and, and there are all the blocks here. You've got to be careful because all of them will weaken the tower. But the fact of the matter is that there are some that are foundational. And you can see up here, if, just, if I take this one out, there, everything above it is going to fall. I mean, it is foundational. These, if I take either of these out, it's foundational. 
And so what we talked about here is that we understand the tower rests on these blocks, and in the same way, we need to think of our lives, in a sense, as a tower that we're trying to build. We need to think of our culture as a tower, and it may not seem real stable, but, but that's what it is. And, and when we think of these as a tower, in a sense, we've got to realize that there are some blocks within that tower that are, by their very nature, essential and foundational, meaning you cannot remove certain blocks without tearing down the whole tower. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are God saying, okay, as you build your life, these are these foundational blocks that if you take these blocks out, it's going to fall apart. Now, that's the introduction, but even as we've talked about that, it clearly implies that all ten of them are essential, and they are. But are they all of equal importance? Or do you think that any of them maybe are more foundational, more essential than some of the others? You know, last week I mentioned that one of the problems that we have when we come to the Ten Commandments is that oftentimes Christians will say that, well, I know it's important, and we talk about it, but then even as Christians, we have a hard time saying them. And, uh, and there have been studies that we referred to that, that on average, most evangelical church-going Christians can name an average of seven. Um, if you go outside of the church, it's an average of less than four. And so I, I don't know, how many of you tried to list the Ten Commandments after, you know, tried to see if you knew them all? And did anybody get all ten? You know, a few. Okay, good. Most people, almost everybody I talked to, they said, oh, I tried to do it. I thought I could get all ten, but I only got seven or I only got eight. And, and it was interesting that, you know, just even from what you all shared with me, most of us struggled. And, and it was not only that kind of in our own personal experience, actually some of the people that have studied this, they've gone a little deeper and they've not only looked at how many commandments people tend to remember, but they've also then looked at the ones that they list and they, they've noted what are the ones that are most often remembered and what are the ones that are most often forgotten. And what they found is that the one most commonly remembered commandments are don't murder, don't steal, and don't commit adultery. Um, you know, then after that, don't lie, honor your parents, don't covet. And, and the most commonly forgotten commandments are the first four. Now, what's interesting is the first four are all dealing with our relationship with God. If you go in the Old Testament, it talks about when God gave the commandments, he gave, he gave them to Moses on two tablets. And, uh, and many of you have seen pictures of the Ten Commandments, and it usually has one through five and one tablet, six through ten most people believe that's not actually what happened. Most people believe that when he gave the Ten Commandments, the first tablet is the first four. The first four are, here's God's commandments as, as it relates to our relationship with God. The second tablet are the last six, and they're dealing with our relationship with each other. And so when you think of that and you realize, okay, if that's true, here the, the ones that we are most common to remember are ones that deal with our relationship with each other. The ones that most people t tend to forget all relate to our relationship with God. Now, I think it's important because if we go back to the question I asked earlier, are any of them more important than any others? I think they are. And I think if you want to know something about the relative importance of the Ten Commandments, just look at the order in which God gave them. And if that's true, what we're going to find is the first commandment that we're looking at today is the first foundation. It's the, it's the, the, you know, the bottom foundation that really it's the first commandment both in significance and priority. It, it's not that God said, okay, I'm going to have 10. Now, which one 
you know, I'll just, I have to put one, you know, I'll just put this one first. It's not by accident. No, God intentionally said, I'm going to give you 10 principles. And the first two are, are at the core more significant than the rest because they're foundational to the rest. If you understand the first two, you will understand the other eight. If you don't understand the first two, all we have really is we have a set of rules with no ultimate reason to obey them. You see, the first commandment is have no other gods before you. It's really saying, okay, do you have a right relationship with God? Is God first in your life? The second commandment we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, it's really dealing with this question of saying, okay, do we believe the right things about God? You know, do we believe, you know, God as he's revealed himself? And what the Bible is teaching is that if we understand those things, if God is central in our life, if we have a true understanding of who God is, and we make him central in our life, then all the other commandments flow naturally from that. But if those things aren't true, all we have is a set of rules and no transcendent reason to really obey them. And so God is putting it first. Now let's even go back to our Jenga game here. So if we go here and if we say, okay, you know, we have this game that is kind of set up in a certain way, and, and you look at this and clearly there's some, some uh, bricks that are foundational. So I can't take this one out without everything falling on top of it. You could look here and you can see, okay, half of the tower is, is based on this. If I take either of these two, it's falling, right? But the thing is that if I take this one out, everything above it is falling. If you were to say, what is the most foundational here to this tower? You look here on the very bottom, you know, we've got one, we've got two. What's that? That's symbolic of, again, the first and second commandment. At the very bottom, you have these two blocks. And the fact of the matter is the whole tower is, is, is on those things. If I take either of those two out, the whole tower is going to fall. It's not only the whole tower, but these other foundational bricks. And that's what we see with the Ten Commandments. Is it, is don't murder important? Is very important. Don't commit adultery, don't steal. Very important. But all of them are built on the, on the deepest foundation of have no other gods beside you. It's built on the foundation of don't make a graven image. It's based on these foundational things. That when you look at this, you know, these, these, are, these are the core, the first foundation. It's, it's, you know, first in significance and priority. Now, what is the commandment? At first, it would seem very simple. We read it, we know it. Have no other gods before me. Now, but if you have your Bible open, I want you to notice, and this is probably true in all the translations you have, is that the word before me in the, in, the, in the translation there, it has a little footnote. And depending on the translation, the footnote's going to read either uh, beside or beside or in addition to. And in reality, the word that is translated, have no other gods before me, could also be translated beside or in addition to. In fact, that is the more common translation. Now, most Bibles keep the traditional have no other gods before me, but in reality, because of this, if you understand it, the, the most literal translation of this verse, the, um, you know, the most common, it would literally, um, you know, it says it would be have no other gods, it, it could be first or better translated, have no other gods uh, uh, beside me or have no other gods in addition to me. That's actually the most literal translation. Now, you say, why would God say that? Well, think about it. Okay, up until that time, you know, the people of Israel, they lived in countries in Egypt and all the countries around them, everybody had multiple gods. 
In fact, throughout, you know, for hundreds of years, every culture had multiple gods. So when God's, you know, people of Israel come and they say, well, we want one God, well, that was unprecedented. That was, that was significant. And here you have God looking at them and saying, I want you to not only have one God and have no other gods before me, but I don't want any other gods in addition to me. You see, a lot of other people, they're looking to multiple deities for multiple needs. And so instead of having, you know, the God that you worship here, and then you have a God for healing, and you have a God for pleasure, and a God for business, and a God for, um, you know, for love, and all these multiple gods that you go to for all your different needs, I want to be your one-stop shop. I don't want to just be your God for church on Sunday. What you do in worship, I want to be the God that is there in every part of your life, every day of the week, in everything that you do. I want to be your one God, your one source, your one source of truth. So if you have crop issues that you come to me, if you have war issues, security issues, you come to me. If you have health issues, you come to me. If you want to know how to enjoy life and entertainment, you come to me. If you want to discover love, you come to me. You come to me for everything, that I am the source of all things. I don't want to be one amongst many gods in your life. I want to be your one and only, because in reality, I am the one and only God. And so I want you to relate to me in that. So when you understand this, what you find is that there's two closely related aspects to this command. The first is what we're probably more familiar, it calls us to make God our first and greatest love. He wants to be the one that we you know, put our greatest love in, our greatest, that we trust him in all things. It's summed up in the great, uh, great commandment where Jesus said, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We should look to God as the ultimate source of happiness and security in every aspect of our life. But then when we understand it's not only that we shall have no other gods before you, but also in addition, we need to understand that God is also calling us to submit to him and his wisdom and authority in all areas of our life. See, not only are we not to have another love that's above God, but we need to realize that if there are no other gods in addition to God, that means in every aspect of life, we go to him. See, I'll talk to people not uncommonly. And I'll talk to one common. Is I'll, I'll say, you know, somebody and we'll be talking about work and, and, and somebody will say, well, you know, this is worship and God and religion and, and work, you know, that's totally different. I, you know, I've got to do that by the rules of the workplace. And, and, and people are, you know, somebody will be saying to me, basically, you know, God is God, but not, not there in, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, the, the workplace, well, God isn't God there. God isn't really sovereign there. And, um, and, or, you know, somebody will come and say, well, you know, here's God and, you know, but my dating life and, and, and sexuality, well, things have changed. And so God isn't really God there or my entertainment. God doesn't really care what I watch. And so I'll talk to people all the time and they'll say things like this. And what we need to realize is that, no, God is God over everything. So when it comes to our work, when it comes to our, our, our sexuality, to our dating life, to our relationships, to our marriage, when it comes to our parenting, when it comes to our entertainment choices, when it comes to everything we do, it means that we need to honor him. When our finances, that we see him as God, we honor him, we treat him in every aspect of what we do. Now, it means that when we look at this, you know, we don't have different gods as different sources of truth in each area. We have one God who is God over everything. Now, here's where we struggle with this. 
I'm, I'm sorry, but we, our slides are kind of messed up again, so I'm, I'm sorry. I think they're trying to fix them. Um, here's where we struggle with this. The hard part is we struggle with this, and we think in terms of God, because we look in the Old Testament, and we think, you know, they had other gods, and they had idols, and they worshiped down, and they, you know, they, we think of worship and gods primarily in terms of, of religious terms. But, but we need to step back and really rethink this whole idea of what is the nature of worship? What is the nature of other gods, small g? Again, when we use the word God and worship, we think in, only in terms of religion and Sunday morning. And so when people say, well, what's your God? They're asking, okay, what religion are you? When you what worship service do you go to? When we think of worship, we think of context of a religious ceremony and, and we come to sing songs or offer some kind of religious uh, sacrifices or something like that. Uh, when we think of gods, we think in, time, in terms of spiritual beings that have spiritual power. And so to worship another god would be to have some spiritual being that has some kind of name uh, that we would go to and we would pray to. Now, both of those are part of worship and of God, but it's not the whole definition. Those, those are limiting definitions. See, what we need to realize is that the idea of God is not limited to statues with names, um, but it's anything that controls our heart. Other gods can be any kind of object, any kind of person, even any kind of thought that we love and trust. It can be the love of money, it can be the love of things, the love of relationship, the love of, of pleasure, the love of entertainment, of hobbies, of uh, something even as good as our work or, or our family. We can take these things and we can put our deepest love in those things and suddenly they become a God. When you understand this, you've got to understand that when we talk about what God do you worship, that's not a religious question. That's, I, I will talk to somebody who claims to be an atheist. I don't, I don't have another God. I don't. People will look at this and they'll see it as a non-religious question. But that's a religious question. It's not a religious question. Because the fact of the matter is, all of us have something that we most highly value. Even a non-Christian, a non, you know, somebody that claims to reject God, they have a God. They have something that they trust in, that they love, that they think about, that, that defines their life, that drives them. All of us do. All of us worship because our worship isn't just what we do in a church on a Sunday morning. It's what we do by lifting something up and making it precious to us. And we get trapped up in this, but again, we have to say, okay, how do we define this whole concept of not only worship, but let's, let's say even in the notes, what's our definition of a God or an idol? And let me give you a couple simple definitions even here. Don't just think of, again, as a God or an idol in the terms of of other religions, you know, in the Old Testament that they had Baal and they had these different things, or, or modern religions where we're talking, you know, Allah or Buddha or whatever. No, we've got to realize that, that the whole concept of God isn't just a spiritual religious idea. In fact, let me give you a definition from, this is from Webster's Dictionary. His defi their definition of, of God, a God, small g, a God is someone or something that is the object of adoration someone or something that is the object of adoration, someone or something that gets your affection, your attention, your time, your treasure, your energy, your service. You see, every person has a God or gods. Every one of us has things that is the object of our adoration. 
And the question is, you know, what is that that is that deep in our heart that's that object of adoration, that's something that we treasure, that we value, that we find our identity in? And so when you think of a god that way, let's then take the term idol. And an idol is just basically something that we make a god. And so if we talk in a practical definition, what is an idol? Very simple definition is this. A practical definition of idol is when something or someone becomes more important to us than God. And that can be a good thing. The fact is, when we think of that, we might think of other gods as bad things. And a lot of times, these are good things. They're good things that God has given us to enjoy, and I can take something as good as a relationship or my job or things that God wants me to enjoy, and if I make them more important to God, I take this good thing and I make it a God thing. And whenever I take a good thing and make it a God thing, we're going to talk about a lot this next week, it starts to actually lose its goodness and actually becomes a destructive thing in our lives. It's any time that we place a person or thing with greater value than God. Now, in ancient times, they looked at different statues and they looked at different things. In our times, we don't do that. It's not that we don't see it as a statue, but it's things. And we're going to see that it's actually, it's, it's really the same spirit. But what is idol? Let me give you one more definition. Tim Keller uh, is a pastor in New York City, and he's written a wonderful book on this idea called Counterfeit Gods. And, and he's, he defines an idol this way. An, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you only what God can give. And what it's saying is that there's certain things that, that God has designed that meet our deepest, deepest needs. And any time that I start looking for something else, some other person to meet my, those deepest needs, What's happened is that I've made that an idol. It could be a good thing that God has given me to meet some needs, but it's not designed to be a good thing, not a God thing. And what we need to realize is that all of us, as we look at this as a follower of, of Christ, and it's this command and how do we apply it, all of us are prone to take the good things that God has given us and to not necessarily go to another church and worship another God. Well, that would be an easy command to keep. But all of us are prone to put good things in our, our life and make them God things so that they become central things to us and so that we have not just another God before me, but I can have a God in addition to. And so well, God's first on Sunday morning, but when it comes to this issue of life, when it comes to these, this part of my life, suddenly I'm putting God in other, you know, other things ahead of God. And when you understand that, what you realize is that what we worship isn't really revealed by what we do on Sundays. But what we really worship is best revealed by what we think and do the rest of the week. You know, what has our heart? What do we think about the most? What, what do we sacrifice our money to? You know, it's even in this, for example, you know, you, you wouldn't think like a hobby that you sacrifice money to, but it is. You know, I'll talk to people and they'll say, you know, their hot loves golf. Man, I bought these new set of clubs, a couple thousand dollars. Oh, it's great. And we're bragging, I spent this much money. I sacrificed this much effort for this because this is my love. And I'm happy to do it. You know, I brought these great tickets to the Browns games and they cost as much. And I'm happy to do it because I love it. I'm happy to sacrifice. You see, that's what we worship. And, and it is revealed by how, what's our obsession? What do we think about? What do we dream, daydream about? What do we fear losing? 
That's our source of security. That's what we're making our God. You see, when we understand this, worship then isn't a theological question, but a practical question. It's a practical question about what we have and think of God. And again, when we think of God, it's not the spiritual power we're praying to, but it's the practical thing of saying, what is it that I'm putting into the place of God that I believe has the power to fulfill my deepest longings? that I think is going to meet my greatest needs. And so suddenly there's all these things that, that God has created as good things that I'm making a God thing. And suddenly I find that, no, I can be guilty of having another God. I'm worshiping God on Sunday morning. But practically when I look at my life, boy, there may be other things that are really in that place of God when I go through Monday through Saturday. Now, when we understand this, we say, well, how does this fit into this whole testament and this whole picture of what they had with gods? Because there are descriptions of these Old Testament gods, and that's what we often think of. And, 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 but there's a link even here of these Old Testament gods that were there back then and are in our modern, shall we say, even American idols. Because when you look at this, yes, the Old Testament, they had these gods that they worshipped, but it really wasn't even those gods that they were worshipping. They were pursuing something that they valued above God. And so if you have this God, and he's the God of, of, you know, of, of pleasure, what you have is people were worshiping pleasure, and they were going through that God as a means to the end. And when you understand that, you realize that things really haven't changed that much. Look what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It's saying, you know, there's something that's being hidden here about the true nature of the gospel. And, and, and how is that the, the case? In their case, the God of this world has been blinded, or has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, here's what I want you to see. The key words here is the gods of this, God of this world, little g, it's not the God of all ages. It's the God of this world, and he's blinded our minds. He's blinded. He's obscured. He's smoked. He's kind of confused our mind, our perception. And, and what's he doing then? The God of this age is blinding our perception about what's true and what's right and where we find fulfillment. And here's what you've got to realize. The God of this age is the same that was the God of the age 3,000 years ago. You have Satan who is behind us all that's a spiritual power, and what he's doing is he's telling the same lies, he's just repackaged it. And so beforehand, that package came and, oh, look to this God, and he's the, here's how he's going to give you this thing that you want. And now we still want, we still chase the same things, we just have a different package of the God that somehow we think is going to provide it. In the Old Testament, they were true deities. In our time, you know, they're not... They're not necessarily deities, spiritual that we think, but we still trust them to provide the same things that those people back then were pursuing. And we may think, and again, well, God, well, he's, he's God of religion, and he's the God of Sunday, and he's the, and, and here's where we have the no other gods in addition to me, because what we're doing is that we're moving away from trust in God in all areas, and we're trusting after these other things and trying to find it through a means other than God, just like they did. Now, there are many gods that are available. Let me look at just five that were kind of from back then that we're still kind of applying today. Okay, one, you may re recognize some of these from the Old Testament, the God of Baal. Um, 
the God of Baal, it, it's, it, it says the God of fertility, it should be fertility and sexuality. And um, I got it wrong there. It says, it's the God who promised satisfaction through sexual behavior. Now, in that day, the, um, I mean, they literally had God of Baal, you could go to worship, they had temple prostitutes. You go to worship and have sex with a prostitute, and you think that redefines worship. And, but the whole idea was is that what they really wanted was sexual pleasure. And they went to a God to get them the sexual pleasure. Now, do you understand that things really haven't changed? When you think about the God that our culture is pursuing, I think this God of Baal, the God of sexuality, man, that's what our culture is fully, full, fully in the pursuit of. And we see it all over our culture, all in the pursuit, everything from, you know, just you know, pornography that is around us and just the sexuality that is separated, celebrated in the media. And even now, when you see pictures of this, how it is now common where people define themselves by their sexuality. So people say, well, I am this, and, and it's not, I'm not a soul. My identity is my physical desire. That's what I am more than anything else. That's my core identity. And you understand, if we think that way, we've fought into this lie. And the fact of the matter, it's the same lie, it just is sold in a different package. Or we could take the God of Moloch, who is the God of pleasure. He's the God of fun, the God of sport. And, you know, so you could have, you know, recreation. And, and I even think about this, and people say, if, if you were to say, what's the most modern, you know, American percept, uh, kind of parallel to a worship service? Go to, go to a sporting event or go to a music concert. And what do you have? You have thousands of people that are gathered, and they're cheering, and the people come out, and we're excited, and we're just cheering, and we're worshiping in a sense. The music comes in, and we're worshiping, and we're singing along with the concert with our favorite, and we're there. And, and not only that, man, we're glad to spend money to get really good seats, and we're glad we're going to go no matter football game, no matter what the, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the uh, weather is like, and, man, and, and you know, for about three hours, it went to overtime. That's better. Boy, if the pastor goes a few minutes over, then, man, we're upset. I mean, it's, I mean it's, the thing is, it's, it's, it's worship, and they're more serious about their worship than we are. Or that we have the pursuit of just recreation, and, and I'll talk to people, and, boy, it's summer, and, and their whole life is built around, well, we've got to go camping, and we've got to go to this, and, and everything is around that. So if that's what you're thinking about the most, and your whole schedule is around that, you have to ask, is it maybe going from a good thing to a God thing? Or parents, if you have young children, so often you can start by saying, well, we want them in sports. And, and next thing you know, it's not only having sports, but boy, it seems like we're out every night, and now they're on a traveling team, and, and boy, we can't be involved in Wednesday night programs because they're in this traveling. Well, now we're traveling on Sunday, and suddenly we can't be at church. And, and when does that good thing become a God thing? And when it becomes a God thing, don't you realize that sooner or later it becomes not a good thing that helps us, but a destructive thing that hurts us. That's not saying that any of those things are bad. Because they are good things, but we have to ask ourselves, are we allowing this good thing to become a God thing? Has it become more important than God? A third one is the God of, of mammon, the God of, or the God of greed, the God of, of wealth. And, and so whether we have money and it's the God of wealth, Wall Street and, you know, and and people are checking it every day, and they're, gotta be, and they're constantly thinking about how their investments are going. And, or even if people that don't have it, I'll talk to people that don't have, because the problem isn't money, the problem is the love of money. And I'll talk to people that don't have money, but they're always thinking about it. They're always wishing they did. They're always thinking about, if I can win the lottery, and what can I do here? And, and it's the love of money. 
And suddenly, is it bad to have wealth? Is it bad to have pursue that? No, but if that's what we think about all the time, if that's what we think is going to bring us happiness, suddenly we've made this good thing a God thing. The fourth one, Asherah, this is a love goddess, and, and it's different than the sex goddess. This is, this is relationships. This was the whole idea that you go to and you pray for, and it's the goddess of romance. And do I believe romance is good? Yeah, I think it's wonderful. But the thing is, is that I can't, we can't make our relationships, it's a good thing, a God thing. You know why Christian marriages often fail? More than anything else, it's because we start to look at our spouse and we expect them to meet God, needs that God was designed to meet. Now, I've often said, I have a wonderful wife, I'm thankful for my wife, she's a great wife, she's a terrible God. And when I start looking to her to meet my needs as God, then she fails, our marriage struggles. But it's not because she's failed, it's because I'm asking her to meet needs in my heart that God was designed to meet. And so you see people that will talk about they're single, oh, when I get married, I'll be happy. Or people that are married, oh, if I could just change my spouse in this way, that'd be happy. Or if I wasn't married, I'd be happy. <laughs> or, you know, you look at that and you say, we're always looking for this one relationship. If I would just be happy if, you know, if, if this changed. And no, these are good things, but they will always fail as a God thing. One more real quickly, not as well known, Iphanius, the goddess of connection. Now, now you might say, well, you know, I don't remember that. That's not as commonly known. Probably you would know it best. There's a really famous picture of the Jewish people worshiping this god. And so if you see this painting, uh, you might actually recognize this god. And um, up here we go. It's kind of dragging here, so it's, um, it's coming up and, you know, up, are we getting, I'm sorry about that, I'll just skip over that, maybe I'll show up here one of these days. Uh, there we go, it's it skipped, okay, um, here we go, you see, you see what it is, okay, it's, you know, what happens is that we look at it, there's certain things that are new, but there's certain things in our heart and life, um, you know, that are, you know, that you look at it and our culture has changed. And when, when I think of even iPhone and social media and things like that, and you think of that, it's amazing something that didn't exist, you know, just 15 years ago is now so vital to so many of our lives. You know, so you look at that and you say, if you walk out without your iPhone, you stress out. Or, or, or how often, you know, we come back and we're, you know, we're, trying to, you know, you know, even in church. I mean, if you're here and you've been checking your, your social media during church, that might give you a hint about something. And some people say, oh, it's not that bad. I just got a message. Well, let me ask you, how often when you're on social media does God interrupt you and you get interrupted to spend some time with God? So if your social media is never interrupted by God, but your God time's interrupted by social media, maybe that suggests that there's a problem here. And my friends, what we've got to realize, it's not that, that you know, phones are bad or social media is bad or any of these you know, technology. It's not bad in and of themselves. What happens is when we take these things and we make them too key. Here we go. Here's the picture. And, um, you know, and we can't sit in silence and we can't, you know, it's, it's when we look at this, that's the problem. That I don't want to make this good thing a God thing. And one of the things we're going to see next week is the problem. All these things are things that are created things that God wants us to enjoy that are good. But if we make a good thing a God thing, they become not good. 
And ultimately, it's not that God is saying, have no other gods before me, because he's saying there's these good things I want to take from you. He's actually saying, these are good things that if you enjoy them wrongly, they become bad things, and I'm trying to protect you from that. I want you to have the best thing. You see, and when you think about the commandment, have no other gods before you, let's put it positively. When you put it, the core issue is not that God is saying, well, love the world less, but he's saying, have me first. How, you know, it's a positive commandment where God is saying, I want you to realize that the more important thing is you don't love me enough. And you allow these other things to distract you from, from your true love. That you're trusting in them. And I want you to trust me fully. I want to be your one-stop shop. I want to be your full God. It's what Jesus talked about and said in positive terms. And again, in the great commandment, Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. This is, is really the summation of the first commandment, just stated positively. I need to believe that God is the one who is my love, that is my, my soul, my mind, everything that he satisfies my needs. I need to take the promise of Psalm 37, where, where, you know, where the psalmist says this, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the des- de- uh, desires of your heart. You know, if we delight in God, what will happen? He gives us the desires, that he fills our needs, that that's where our greatest passion is fulfilled. And when you understand this, when you understand what he is saying here, the problem is not that our desires are too great, but that they're too small. That what I'm doing is that I'm looking at all the things, the little things, these other gods, these little Gs that that the world is offering and and saying, here are these promises. And when I go and chase after them, what I'm doing is that I'm really in in reality taking my mind off the delight of the Lord. And he will give me everything. He will help me to understand and enjoy these things. He will meet my greatest and deepest needs. They're too small. And what's here, you have God saying, okay, I want to be central in your life. I want to be central. I want you to be able to keep me there. And when you keep me there, I'm going to meet those deepest needs. And it's not only central that on Sunday morning, but in every aspect. And so he says, okay, am I central in, in, in your dating? Am I central in your relationships? Am I central in your family and your parenting? Am I central with your wealth and, and your money? Am I central in, in your business? Am I central in your entertainment? In every aspect, Monday through Sunday, I want to be central. And when I start to invoke trust in other things and I put God there and I trust other things, what I'm doing is that I'm putting another God in addition to and in reality in that area at least in front of God. Do we really trust that his will is best or do we obey the same lie that Satan's been selling since the garden? You know, God didn't really, God holding that back. So you can trust God in this area, in this area, in this area, but, but here, take the fruit. Here, trust something else. Trust yourself. Trust your own wisdom. Now, there might be some that are here, and if you say, okay, well, I'm not really doing that. I'm not sure I have this relationship with God, or, boy, I realize that I don't, and maybe I've taken this out, and it explains. I want you to understand, when we talk about these commandments, that they're not, here are the rules that you have to have relationship with God. These are principles that God says, I want to build a relationship with you on. But it's a relationship that he builds, not based on our performance, but based on grace. If you don't have a relationship with God, maybe you're here and you say, man, my life's falling apart. I want you to see here's why. And it's not that God's trying to beat you up and condemn you for that, but God's trying to say, all right, make me first. And if you make me first, I'll rebuild your life. 
And for some of us that we have that relationship, and, but I've started to take that out and I'm placing God with other things in other areas of my life. I'm having other gods in addition to God in certain areas. And suddenly it's starting to towers toppling. And God's not saying, okay, I'm beating you up and feel guilty. And God's saying, no, I'm trying to call you back to me. I want this relationship with you. I want to build your life. I want it to be something that is beautiful and that is wonderful. Will you trust me in that way? I think for all of us, we have to ask just, just briefly some questions and self-evaluation because all of us struggle with this, myself included. And again, it's not necessarily with bad things. You know where I struggle? As I've looked in my own heart, areas that I struggle, I struggle. I can take being a pastor and make it a God. I can take serving God and make it more important than my relationship with God. And take something as good as serving him and being a pastor and actually making an idol. I've got to be careful with that. I've got to let God search my own heart and say, God, am I doing that? I can take my family, something as wonderful as being a father on Father's Day, a good thing, and I can make that a God. God's challenged me on that. I've got to say, God, I don't want to do that. I want to keep a good thing a good thing and not make it a God thing. And I've got to keep asking my own heart, how do I make sure that I'm not doing that? Some just brief questions. Where do you spend your time? Number two, where do you spend your money? You know, people say, you know, when you say, if you, you know, if you want to know what's important to you, well, show me your calendar, show me your checkbook, you know, show me your wallet, show me where you spend your time, where you spend your money. That probably says more than anything else what's of greatest value to you. In the Bible, Jesus even said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Why? Because it reveals where our heart is. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Number three, the slides again are going slow. Just go, where do I get my joy? What do, you, what do you look for? What do you dream about? What do you think is, you know, what is it going to be? Oh, I can't wait for that to happen. What, and what's always on your mind? What's, what do you think about in the morning? What do you think about, you know, throughout the day? If you're thinking about the same thing every morning, that tells you what you love the most. And you know, again, for all of us, it, it may not always be God, and that's okay. We're not saying this to beat us up. It's, it's not God saying, Here, here's the command, and if you fall short, you're out. He's saying this is for people that are in, that have a relationship based on grace and saying, this is how I want to be close to you. This is how I want you to know the promise, the words of promise that I'm offering to you. 